Bow chicka wow wow. Hello, big shout out to the year nine and year ten massive MC Rulio coming at ya. Okay, hello. Um, welcome back to the third instalment of my January exam guide. And we looked previously at the birth of Weimar and the Treaty of Versailles, and we're now moving on to the thoroughly exhilarating topic of political problems. And this is where we're going to get down and dirty with violence in Weimar, Germany. Okay, so here we are, political problems. First thing you need to understand is the political system in Germany. You need to know that there are left-wing people, and there are right-wing people. And... Um, Maybe you even remember that cheesy song I played you. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Okay? Um, so, on the left wing, far left wing, you've got the communists. Yes, that's right. And on the far right wing, you've got the fascists. So, a little low down on the left wing. Left wing people, well, they, they believe in the following things. They want to treat workers equally, give them power. Not let the, the elite... The well-educated, wealthy people dominate the country. They believe that big business should be owned by the state, that profits should be shared out amongst the people, not kept by wealthy businessmen. And they stress that nations, countries should cooperate together to achieve this aim. And they've got to focus on the group, not the individual. Okay, right-wing people, they believe in maintaining tradition, law and order, traditional values. They have a focus on the individual rather than on the group. And they believe in strong government and powerful leaders. And they believe in nationalism on the extreme right. They believe in the country's interest rather than the individual's interest. So you should put the country ahead of yourself. Interesting one, that. Okay, um, let me take you through the political spectrum in Germany. Starting on the extreme left, you've got the Communist Party. They opposed the Weimar Republic and were supported by mainly workers and a few middle-class people. If you move slightly towards the centre from the left, you've got the socialists, the social democrats. They were moderate left-wing, left of centre, and they supported the Weimar Republic, because actually, mostly, they were the Weimar Republic. And they were supported by workers and middle-class people. And then you've got the Democratic Party, just left of centre, and they supported the Weimar Republic and were generally backed by businesses. Then right in the middle, you've got the Centre Party. Oh yes, you wouldn't believe it, would you? Only in Germany would they call the party in the centre the Centre Party. You don't say. So, they were moderate, not left-wing, not right-wing, slap bang in the middle. They supported the Weimar Republic and had a tradition of being supported by the Catholic Church, interestingly enough. Just right of centre, you've got the People's Party, right-wing, Still liberalish, but just right of centre. They supported the Weimar in the 1920s and got a little bit shirty with them in the 1930s. And they were backed by generally wealthier upper middle class people. And then on the right, you've got the National Party. They opposed the Weimar Republic. They represented landowners, wealthy people, people who didn't like any of this commie nonsense suggesting that workers should have power. Yeah, workers, that's not what we went to rich private schools for, thank you very much. They supported the National Party. And on the extreme right, the one, the only, Nazi Party. Clearly they opposed the Weimar Republic. And we'll look at who they were supported in a... who they were supported by in a, in a future radio podcasty thing. 
Okay, right, so that's the political spectrum in Germany. Um, for the people in the left wing, the German revolution had not gone far enough. They still were desperate to see the workers maintain power. For people on the right wing, like the nationalists and the Nazis, um, well, they blamed the left wing for the Kaiser having left and for Germany's problems. They blamed the, um, the, the left wing for the loss of World War I. They blamed the government for abandoning the army in World War I. Dolstos, stab in the back. And all of this confrontation, left wing wanting more revolution, right wing wanting less, wanting it to go back, led to violence. The left wing even had their own group of nutcases, the Rotfrontkampfer, uh, the Red Front Fighters, good name. And uh, the right wing, they had the Stahlhelm, the steel helmets, wonder what they wore on their heads. And together you've got these political armies, these private political armies, coming to blows in the streets of Germany, exciting stuff, beating each other up. And violence escalates as things get worse. And you can see, when we look at the Nazis, the setting up of the SA even adds to this cocktail. Okay, um, so, let me give you a, little, a few examples of political violence. We've got Hugo Hasse, one of Ebert's Council of People's representatives, murdered in 1919. Matthias Erzberger, a moderate politician who signed the surrender of Germany in 1918. Well, thanks for doing that, Matthias. He was shot and killed walking in the Black Forest in August 1921. Oh, that's where they uh, make gattos, by the way, if you weren't aware. Black Forest gattos, that's where they're from. Um, Walter Ruthenau, the Weimar foreign minister. He was machine-gunned to death in the street in Berlin in June 1922. Yes, turning off Coronation Street, he's got nothing on these Germans, has he? Psycho. Okay, so all in all, between 1919 and 1922, 376 political murders, mostly of left-wing or moderate politicians. But not a single right-wing person is sent to prison and executed for it. Ten left-wing people were, so what does that tell us? The judges, those guys with the wigs, they were right-wing. They did not support the left-wing. Okay, so let's talk about the big uprisings then in the 1920s. We're going to kick off with the Spartakists. 6th of January 1919, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. They lead 100,000 communists to rebel in Berlin. Big trouble for Ebert. And... Um, Ultimately, because Ebert doesn't have an army, remember, or much of an army, 100,000 men, that's it. He can't really take them on. And so what he does is he enlists the help of a load of ex-soldiers. Not actual soldiers, ex-soldiers. Technicality. And 250,000 of these join what's called the Freikorps. And these are basically private armies of ex-soldiers who are disgruntled, don't like communists, don't like left-wing people, who want to kick their heads in. And that's exactly what they do. Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht are shot. Rosa's thrown in the canal and Karl, bless him, is booted out of a car at high speed. And the rest of the Spartakists are killed or dispersed. And that's the end of them, really. The Communist Party still has political power, but that's the end of the Spartakist branch of them. Okay. Then in 1920, you've got the Cat Putsch. Those Freikorps chaps got a little bit up themselves and decided they'd try and take power themselves. So in 1920, 5,000 of these Freikorps march on Berlin, led by Captain Wolfgang Cap. And the government runs away. They can't take them on. It's too much. It's too much. Do not hit the face. And they run away. 
The only way Ebert can deal with this is by calling for a strike. He hasn't got anyone to take them on. The army's too weak. So he calls the workers to go on strike. And luckily for him, they do it. Services stop, electricity, water, all sorts of things. Wolfgang Kapp realises he's about as welcome as a, as a fart in a spacesuit. And all of a sudden, he realises the game's up and off he goes. No support. So... Cheerio, cheerio, cheerio to Wolfgang Kapp. And then, of course, we've got the next big one in 1923, the Munich Putsch, or Beer Hall Putsch, led by Hitler and the Nazis. And we'll go into that in a bit more detail later on, but what you, what you need to remember, of course, is that it's the Nazis' big attempt at a putsch in Munich, and it doesn't go very well. Hitler goes to prison, and um, he ends up changing his mind about how they're going to get elected, blah, 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 all that stuff. But we'll come to that much later on. Um, but even so, it's just another example of people's lack of faith in the government and the fact that people are pretty annoyed with the government by now. So, what was the damage done by the unrest then? What did all this stuff actually do? Well, what it did is it showed that Weimar had relay, relied on playing the left and the right wing off each other. They relied on the workers. What they hadn't done is actually managed to stay in power really on their own authority. They'd used other people's authority. And what it did is it led to the extremists gaining strength. Private armies like the SA grew at this time. Not good for Germany and more evidence of the failing support for the government. Okay, so uh, that's it for now. Hope you enjoyed that. And next time we're going to look at 1923, the year of three crises. Okay, so um, thank you very much and um, thank you for listening. I, that's if you haven't gone to sleep. Okay, thank you very much. Cheerio. Bye-bye. No, you put the phone down first. No, you put the phone down first. No, you put the phone down first. <laughs>